Have you ever met one of those people who just can't be stopped? It's like they're unstoppable. Yeah, I have. Me too. What's their mystique? Nothing stops these people. Welcome to Mission Unstoppable with Coach Frankie Picasso. You're about to meet some of the most amazing people. They've accomplished their goals despite insurmountable odds. They beat adversity, physical hardship, and traumatic events and emerge triumphantly. They're people just like you and me. And they're winners. Are you unstoppable? Here's Frankie to show you how. It's been a while since you guys have seen me. I have been on hiatus, I guess you could call it, if you like. Uh, but I am very, very pleased to be here today with some wonderful people. Um, this is Mission Unstoppable. And I'm going to do something that I never do on an evergreen show, and that's to date this show. But I think it's important to leave a marker here for the future. Today is September the 9th, 2021. And the kids are back in the classroom this week for after almost two years. They're wearing masks, hopefully. Travel is reopening this week for those who are vaccinated. The government is issuing vaccination certificates, but make no mistake, we are in our fourth wave of COVID. The Delta variant is not slowing down. In fact, hospitals are once again overrun, putting elective surgeries like cancer removal on hold because some folks decided that they want to see if the rest of us turn green and die young, maybe. Uh, for the life of me, I don't understand why anybody would want this lifestyle. Uh, leave it up to you to decide. Speaking of lifestyles, uh, we have a choice whether we get vaccinated or not. But those folks that we'll be speaking about today, those who are attracted to same-sex partners, do not. And with me today is Brent Marchand. Brent, you can wave. The Good Radio Network's movie critic extraordinaire, who you see once a month, um, lately with Danielle Vandale, or Danielle Finley, excuse me, she got married. Uh, she And he is going to be co-hosting with me today as we speak to Patrick Salmon and Bennett Singer, the two co-directors and co-producers of a brilliant award-winning documentary entitled Cured. The film brings to life a largely unknown chapter in the history of the struggle of LGBTQ equality, the campaign that led to the American Psychiatric Association's to remove homosexuality from its manual of mental illnesses. Now, before we get started on that, let me introduce you to our guests. Bennett Singer is a Los Angeles-based filmmaker whose previous credits include co-directing Electoral Dysfunction, an award-winning film on voting rights, and Brother Outsider, a documentary portrait of the gay civil rights activist, Bayard Rustin, that premiered at the Sundance and won more than 20 international prizes, including the GLAAD Media Award. Patrick Salmon is also with us. He's a resident of Washington, D.C. He previously served as creator and executive producer of another fabulous film, Codebreaker, an award-winning drama documentary about the life and legacy of gay British codebreaker Alan Turing that reached more than 3 million viewers worldwide. And I'm pretty sure we reviewed that movie, Brent, and we love that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, I just want to paraphrase Margaret Mead. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. And indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. And Cured is a great example of this. As you two so eloquently point out in the film, the struggle is real. So how did you two get connected to do this film? Well, it's great to be with you. And it's been quite a, quite an odyssey. So we're thrilled to be able to, to talk with you about the film. And uh, yeah, Bennett and I... Uh, became uh, acquainted, I guess, about almost a decade ago. Boy, Bennett, time flies, doesn't it? Yeah. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> it's our little secret. <laughs> yeah, a mutual friend connected us. Uh, I was in the middle of 
uh, distribution efforts on Codebreaker and Bennett was hip deep in, in another film and we sort of uh, bonded over the, you know, the difficulty of being an independent filmmaker and uh, Bennett actually served as a consulting producer on, on Codebreaker to help offer advice as, as I was distributing that. And so a few years later in 2014, a friend of mine in Washington, D.C., uh, Charles Francis, who's president of the Mattachine Society of Washington, D.C., Mattachine was the group that Frank Kamney started in the 50s, and Frank is one of the heroes of the LGBT civil rights movement, really one of the pioneers, and one of the, the heroes we spotlight and cured. Mm -hmm. And so my friend Charles had written a screenplay about the life of Frank Kameny, and one of the scenes in it, he had me read it, was this 1972 uh, moment uh, pictured behind Bennett. You see the man in the mask, uh, Dr. John Fryer, a Philadelphia psychiatrist who had to dress in disguise and use a voice distorting microphone in order to talk about what it was like to be a gay psychiatrist. I was familiar with this story, but the scene in my friend's uh, film script sort of jumped off the pages of me as something that would make an incredible documentary. And I was excited to realize that no one else had done a documentary like this. There had been the uh, this American Life uh, episode on National Public Radio, which which told a part of this story. So I was immediately intrigued and, and I recruited uh, Bennett to join me on this on this uh, on this journey. And it's been quite an adventure. And we're so humbled to be able to tell this story. Do you want to add anything to that, Bennett? <laughs> oh, well, I'm just uh, happy that Patrick reached out when he did. And um, I think it, it did end up being uh, a longer and more complex journey than we might have anticipated. But, you know, with the benefit of history and hindsight now, we can, you know, I can say that I think we interviewed about a dozen people and of that group, five have passed away since we talked to them. And yeah. so that fragility and that timeliness of the production really is top of mind. You know, if we had waited another five years, um, it wouldn't have been possible to tell the story as we did with the first person testimony of participants. So true. And um, before funding had started to materialize, we really just sort of seized the moment and did our first interviews um, based on our own belief that, you know, it was worth capturing this material and, and um, finding some money from our own production companies. Uh, not so deep resources, but, I think that was a smart decision because, you know, the very first person we interviewed was Ronald Gold, who, when we contacted him, he's very, as you can see in the film, he was very feisty. And he talks even in the film about righteous anger and that righteousness and anger kind of came out in interacting with him. But he said, you know, I'm a recovered heroin addict and I'm 86, I think he was, and, I, and he was in declining health and he really said you know light a fire under this and um make it happen if you want to interview me and, and we did and it was a very intense and extensive interview like five hours or something um, wow. which you know of course only a, a fraction of that ended up in this film but i think in the longer term our materials will eventually be accessible to other historians and having that Chronicle is, is great for the sake of the movement and the history and, and, and sort of the historical record. Brent, did you want to say anything? Yeah, I mean, one thing I wanted to pick up on, you said that this was, uh, you were amazed that the story had never been told before. And yet I find that interesting because in so many ways, this almost like Stonewall 
was really one of the uh, events that springboarded the whole gay rights movement to start going forward. Yeah, I think that's a that's a, a, a good insight. I mean, it's, the fact is, as long as we were classified as mentally ill, then business and government weren't, weren't going to do anything to treat us any better. They used that as an excuse to discriminate. So this really had to be the first domino to fall. And and while um, Stonewall was, was an important moment, of course, there were other sort of similar events that happened in those years where where uh, members of our community, you know, rose up. And uh, this really, though, was the first one where the energy of Stonewall and all those new activists, I think Kayla Husen talks about it in our film, this, you know, they, they come, they get involved in the burgeoning gay liberation movement, as it was then called. And this becomes one of their main priorities early on, though, interestingly, Frank Kameny got some resistance in the movement that, that we should be focusing on this issue. But it is interesting that this really had to be the first, um, fight that there was. And that's one of the things I think that surprised us in making the film. We knew it was important, but I'm not sure we understood how important it was until we really took a, a deeper dive into this story. And particularly talking with the people we did interview, people like Ron Gold, the stigma, the internalized homophobia that this mental illness label created. So many of the folks we interviewed talked about, you know, as, as teenagers going to the library in the 1950s or early 60s, and they're searching for anything about who they might be. They're trying to make sense of what it is they're feeling. And they learn that they're, they're sick, they're mentally ill. And the effect that that had on their own psyche, I think, can't be overestimated. And that's really one of the biggest impacts of this of eliminating this, this label, if you will, is that, you know, the, the 16 year old in 1975 is he or she is trying to make sense of who they are. They aren't stigmatized in the same way. Obviously there was uh, an incredible amount of homophobia and they needed to navigate various uh, challenges, but this was such a sea change in, in the, in the road to equality. And the, no, other, I, thing, the other thing uh, I found amazing about it too, is that how quickly, it happened after Stonewall. I mean, it was like four years. I mean, given how long the gay community had to put up with this for decades and never seeing any change. And then all of a sudden seeing it basically turn on its head in like four years is astounding. I mean, I wish progress moved that quickly today. <laughs> it's no, Brent, a good point. I, yeah, it is I a good point. I wonder though, I mean, so many of them were psychiatrists themselves that, that, that ran with it or, you know, scientists and, and, um, in the field. And so I wonder if, if you know, that level of, of uh, commitment from some people who were like, you know, other than their, their, their sexual preference, uh, like their peers, you know, drove some of that or at least gave it some sanity. <laughs> in the, in well, the I do think, yeah, it's a good point that, you know, the, the, um, the people that the activists were trying to reach were in fact scientists and medical professionals. And I give them credit for listening. You know, initially the activists were really focused on invading meetings and confronting the psychiatrists and shouting and, and drawing attention to this issue, which I think 
is a logical way to start, but then pretty quickly it shifted into dialogue. And there's even a scene in the film where literally, you know, the invading activists say, we want to talk to you. We want you to listen to us. And we want to tell you about our lives and our belief that we are happy and healthy and normal and well-adjusted and functioning. And, you know, it, it really highlights the difference between mental illness and mental health, which is kind of at the heart of what the activists wanted to convey to the psychiatrists and psychologists and pretty quickly the APA actually as an institution responded by having panels and forums and debates in their internal mechanism of these annual meetings and there there was this very healthy conversation that emerged and I think that's such a blueprint for other kinds of social change in the sense that if there are two sides of an issue isn't it healthy to try to come together and talk I mean, it's a radical notion these days, but it worked, you know, and I, you know, and and even the APA, ultimately, every member had to vote on whether to affirm the board's decision to take homosexuality out of the mental illness manual. And um, the fact that a majority of members did cast their votes in favor of that change, I think, you know, in that moment, they became allies, but they also sort of demonstrated that they were rigorous scientists who were looking at the data and looking at the evidence and thinking about what had been um, the basis for the diagnosis in the first place. Because to go back to that, it was initially classified in the first edition of the the DSM as a sociopathic personality disturbance based on a failure to conform to society's, you know, norms. And so should that be a mental illness? Right, that was part of it too. And 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 then, you know, I think the activists were so shrewd, led by Frank Kameny and others, about saying let's look at the data, let's look at the research, let's think about this in a scientific framework. Yeah. You, you know, it was interesting that I love that Barbara Giddings and, and that the men and women worked together to do it, which was you know, really interesting. Not always the case. Yeah, that was case. very heartening. And I'm wondering, though, because the question always came up for me, at what year, let's say 2000, 2015, do, do the young LGBTQ know about this? Do they care about this? Do they even think about, you know, who came before them? Like, yeah, any, I mean, to, like any civil liberty. See, I, I would, I would uh, you know, the fact is most young people and well, I don't mean to talk talk down about younger. The fact is, uh, history is not something most people like or appreciate. I mean, look at, you know, we as a society fail to learn from history in a in a range of areas. Yeah, so it's not true. just the LGBT <laughs> community that isn't up to speed on history. But that is certainly one of the goals we have for this film, is to really use it as an educational tool uh, in high schools, particularly, yeah. I know Bennett with his prior, some of his prior films has, has distributed films widely in, in schools. And we want to do the same thing here with this one, because we do see this story as really central to the history of our movement. And one of the things about it is it has a happy ending. Yeah. So much of the struggle, particularly as, I mean, we highlight early in the film, you know, the struggle certainly in the fifties and sixties is, is so, sad and so many uh so much trauma and so much uh, stigma and really it's it's a sad story and here we have this amazing success this unlikely success uh brent you mentioned how quickly this was achieved that you know probably 95 percent of apa members in the late 60s would have thought this was a mental illness and here this ragtag group of people uh 
put pressure from the outside. You have the insiders within the APA, Frank, you mentioned, and they achieved this amazing success. So we hope that the inspirational nature of the story also is a lesson for the young people today who are fighting for social change, not only in the movement for LGBT equality, but other social change movements as well. Don't you find it interesting in humanity that whether you're native or you're homosexual or you've got some perceived something wrong with you, the go-to is to castrate, is to give lobotomies, is to you know make sure that you can never procreate. And I mean, we're we're just so in dark ages still. It's it it, it astounds me, really. Well, that yeah, I think that that um, push towards conformity is such a theme here, and and especially given the time frame of the fifties and coming, you know, in the, in the midst of the cold war in the sense of we need to keep America safe, uh, which is an ongoing <laughs> refrain. And, and to do that, we need people to be normal and we need them to, to conform to this model of what is masculinity, what is femininity, what is a family, what is normal sexual behavior. I mean, I think Kinsey shattered that with his groundbreaking reports, again, grounded in scientific data um, and it's fascinating to, you know, to understand what kind of pushback Kinsey got, is including from psychiatrists who were saying, well, this is so clinical. This is, you know, he's, he's taking out the emotional aspect of relationships and just looking at behavior. Um, so that's something we touch on in the film and that, that sense of conformity and um, the, the social pressure that had uh, had been placed um, specifically on gay and lesbian people to uh, overcome and, and sublimate their natural feelings um, is, is absolutely part of the film. Yeah, I found I found um, uh, Charles Silverstein to be particularly poignant. And, you know, and I remember that there was a point in the film when, when he said, you know, I feel really bad about the women I slept with because I was never going to have a relationship with them. And, you know, seven years, eight years of, of therapy. <laughs> and then finally goes, wait a minute, I don't need this. I'm not, I'm okay. I'm normal, you know? And just that, that light bulb moment for him. And, yeah, and you think of, I know the film we, we alluded to, it highlights some of these more horrific treatments that the quote treatments that people yeah. receive, whether it's lobotomy, but most of the people who were trying to quote change uh, themselves went through something like what Charles Silverstein did. I mean, three times a week for seven years. He's such a brilliant man. Can you imagine how we could have spent all those hours if he yeah. hadn't been doing having to endure that kind of therapy? And you you alluded to it as well. Sort of the the other victims in this effort to quote cure people are those uh, partners who you know so many who who married and and. Uh, you know, uh, Dr. Pillar talked about that as well, his own experience and other of the storytellers in the film. But really, um, I guess the, the, uh, the crass term, the collateral damage of this mental yeah. illness label in, in families and in society and, and communities really can't be um, overstated. Yeah, there's also that chilling soundbite or footage from the psychiatrist juxtaposed with Charles Silverstein and who says, well, you know, the, the answer to this is we need to find women who are easy that's like you know <laughs> women who are just who will just you know serve hey these there. men and find again going back to conformity and what is the role of a of a, a productive woman in you know 1960s america well, apparently to help 
you know, men find their masculinity. It's, it's pretty chilling, but I, you know, and I think that's an example where a film can sometimes do something that a book maybe doesn't, or just having that actual footage in his voice in that moment. But not even the, for gay know. men, for any men, women are supposed to go, it's okay. It happens. Right. Right. No, <laughs> it's true. And the it's overlap okay. it's and, and right. And the aspects of gender, you know, oppression is, is certainly another big theme in the film. Yeah, it, it, it was phenomenal. I, I loved it, loved it. Brent, I know that you have yeah. more to say. No, I, I certainly, <laughs> you know, I certainly appreciate the educational value that you're talking about with the film. And it's something I mentioned in my, my review of the film as well. Uh, I grew up pre-Stonewall. So I remember a lot of what those times were like. I never faced anything with, uh, you know, being put in a mental institution or anything like that. But I remember having to feel like I had to walk around a lot ducking and covering essentially whenever this subject would come up. Uh, one thing in particular that I found really chilling in the film was the scene where the uh, grade school kids were being addressed by the speaker and, you know, pointing their pointing his finger at them and scolding them and thinking, don't you dare fall for this? You know, uh, I mean, I have to, I have to admit, I'd never experienced anything directly like that, but I think if I had, I probably would have gone so far back in the closet that I never would have come out. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, we start the film with that scene because it's so chilling and really emblematic of, of what society's view was of, of homosexuality at the time. And you can see the terror in the kid's eyes. I mean, it's really uh, so um, disconcerting to see that. And you do wonder about those kids in that room who were gay and lesbian and what that must have done to them psychologically and uh, to, to your point hey, running back in or running to the closet being afraid to live is really just a, a, a very um, a troubling scene but we wanted to start in that way just to orient people with what it was like for gay and lesbian people at the time particularly young people and and, and to that point it's like I remember saying to people why would somebody choose this? Like if you had a choice, you know, why would you choose to be, to be, you know, beaten up or threatened or have, you know, electric shock therapy? Like if they had a choice to change, wouldn't they do that under this threat? Yeah. So I, I, I could just boggle the mind that they couldn't come to that conclusion themselves. Really. And Brent, you know, I have to say, well, you, you, well, did I a have double, to... you did yourself a double number. <laughs> I actually, you know, I, I, there was a time when I was initially coming out when I agreed with that very point. But then after I was out for a while, I was like, no, I wouldn't change. Right. This is who I am. I mean, accept me for who I am. And that's no, but that what is I my point. Yeah. If, if mean, it was I, a choice, you yeah. could choose not to be, you know, have that done to you, let's say even, but you didn't have a choice in, in your sexual preference. It is what it is. Yeah. It is what it is. Yeah. I think part of that goes back to this notion of experts and, you know, the people who I imagine you encountered friends or, you know, the people that are storytellers were listening to these medical professionals or, you know, I, I have reread recently that New York Times bestselling manual, everything you always wanted to know about sex, but were afraid to ask, which was number one on the New York Times bestseller list for over a year. I'm sure. And in so many ways, it was like this incredibly progressive, liberating 
you know, book um, of kind of taking people into the sexual revolution. But if you look at what it says about homosexuality, it's, it's, it's absolutely the DSM line. Like this is a curable mental illness. Go to your nearest psychiatrist and you can change if you want to. And so, you know, for, if these are our experts and these are, you know, the people who are studying this question and, and really offering advice and counsel and, you know, self-help, it's very understandable that there was this mindset that, you know, if I want to change, I can. And that helps explain why people like Charles Silverstein did go to therapy three times a week for seven years, or other people voluntarily chose to go through with more extreme measures like lobotomies even or electroshock therapy like that was that a choice if i I just want to change well i think in some cases it actually was a choice yeah and in other cases you know like the guy in the film rick stokes who talks about well the doctor said well you know we could castrate you but we'll, we'll try something a little less extreme and then that you know he rick stokes ended up being subjected to electroshock therapy yeah. my sense is he so had some it. say in that, you know, as a, as a patient, like it wasn't. Well, if you're mentally Ill, Ill, I don't think you do. They just can just. Well, that's a good, yeah, it's, it's so. a fine line, but there, I think there certainly were people who either their parents chose, you know, the treatment or they themselves felt like this is what the experts are telling me to do. Therefore I will choose to undergo these extreme measures. Is it Dr. Saccharides? Is that how you pronounce his name? Socrates. Socrates. His son was gay, correct? What yes. happened to him? Did you find out? I'd like to. <laughs> yeah, no, it's such a such a fascinating. I mean, if we had been writing a fictionalized telling of this story, of course, you would make the main villain's son be gay, and that's that's yeah. the way it was in 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 real life. And the fact is, Charles Socrates, a couple of things. One of the things we want to do was make him a three dimensional person and I think having his son Richard participate in the film allowed us to do that and we're so appreciative of him for for being able to to share how old is he now Uh, he's probably uh he was a teenager in the early 70s so what would that make him 60 in his 60s right but they've had you know uh Charles Socarides didn't die until 2003 and they you know they had a relationship throughout their lives obviously it was strained but Richard talks about that and it's interesting that Charles Socarides' theory of homosexuality blamed the father. So yeah, that's yeah. another layer of the onion. But I think it's really amazing to think, uh, and we highlight this in one of the scenes in the film, you have Richard Socarides as a young teenager trying to make sense of who he is. And he's sort of experimenting with his uh, sexuality in the top floor of their townhouse. And on the, in the basement, Charles Socarides is trying to cure homosexual patients it's really you know the ultimate upstairs downstairs uh, (laughs) story but it's really um you know richard ended up it's it's a a testament to him that even in this moment even when he's 16 years old or however old at this time is self-aware enough to ignore his father's sort of life's work he sort of understands you know what i'm okay and it's a real testament to him for being able to to make it through an environment like what he must have grown yeah. up with. And he even told us that he tried to sort of separate the dinner time conversation. It was almost like, that's my father's job and I'm going to ignore that. And I, I'm, I am who I am. And of course he, Richard ended up becoming a, um, involved in the LGBT civil rights movement and became 
the main advisor on LGBT issues for President Clinton. So he became wow. a, a, a big deal, if you will, in the in the push for equality. And, and it's really a, such an interesting part of the film that we were fortunate to be able to tell. Is there a museum? Is there a museum, LGBTQ museum? Well, uh, um, it's uh, there's an effort in New York City to start one. There's certainly different archives around that focus on these uh, issues. There are particular pieces in the Smithsonian or the Library of Congress, but there is various efforts to have a, a dedicated museum to LGBT history. Yeah, because I was thinking, you know, you talk about pride. You know, I was involved with pride. I used to be the condom queen of Toronto. And, you know, I, I did all the condoms one year for pride. And I'm I'm just thinking, you would think you would have the history in a Sorry celebration that. like that. Yeah. It's true. It is true. Yeah, I, I just noticed I, I, um, the Smithsonian does have a, um, a set of online uh, exhibits relating to LGBT history. I think if you search for Smithsonian and Pride and LGBT, you'll, you'll get some fascinating artifacts. But you're right, there isn't, as far as I know, a, a single museum that really focuses exclusively on this history and these efforts I think are really important and so, you know, worthwhile. Um, it's, yeah. it's kind of a long overdue piece of, of um, human history to, to focus on and have, you know, gathered in one place. Speaking of archives, one of the things that really impressed me about the film was the degree of research they went into putting this together. I mean, you said before we began the interview that it took five years to bring this together, right? But just, I was so impressed with how thorough the documentation of everything was, particularly with some of these like critical moments in the history of telling this story that you managed to find the footage to, to, uh -huh. to, to, to document what actually happened at that time. Can you talk a little bit about how your process went for doing the research on the film? Yeah, I'll, I'll hand the baton to Bennett in a minute. Uh, but, um, you know, it we owe a lot of the credit to uh, our two archival producers, uh, Luann Jones and Radu Chandra, and they really did such an amazing job scouring not just the country, but the globe to find various uh, pieces of this story. I mean, everything from a 60 Minutes episode in the summer of 1973 that I'm not sure anyone had seen since it was broadcast uh, to, you know, I enjoy watching the film for a lot of reasons, but there's sort of a story behind each visual element we see in the film. And some of that involved visits to archival facilities. We went to a dozen of them and I'll let Bennett share our highlight from those visits in a minute. But it was really very much a scavenger hunt where we know here's the story we want to tell. I mean, one example, the 1971 APA protest in Washington. This is where Frank Kameny takes over the microphone and sort of bellows at the at the assembled psychiatrist to say, you know, uh, to take us out, you know, stop calling us mentally ill, the science doesn't justify. It. Well, that those, we didn't know those photos existed. And it, as it turned out, uh, Luann Jones was able to get some un, um, unorganized um, photos of from Time Life magazine from 1971. So we got something like 2000 photos. Wow. I mean, it's, it's all, and, and they said they're unlabeled. We don't know what's here take a look at these. And I was just completely blown away. I knew this part of the story and I knew what Frank Kameny looked like and I knew the name of the hotel. So when I saw on the, on the podium, the name of the hotel, I knew that this was 
1971 APA convention in Washington. And we ended up having a half dozen photos and it would, makes it so much stronger, but just each piece of the story ends up being a, a, a story like that, which is a good transition to Bennett, who can talk about, about our sort <laughs> the of holy grail. <laughs> <laughs> it's, well, I, um, as you can imagine, we were eager to try to find either footage or audio of John Fryer's speech, you know, mm -hmm. this moment where he's wearing the mask and, you know, in order to come out, John Fryer needed to hide behind a mask, which is its own sort of wild story and this amazing piece of political theater. But um, he died almost 20 years ago and his papers were donated to the Historical Society of Pennsylvania, something like 217 boxes. Um, which is a lot of a mountain of, of our, you know, materials, but there was one, uh, we went, Patrick and I went in person and spent several days there. And there was one um, little shoe box labeled miscellaneous audio, again, kind of uncatalogued and on, you know, it wasn't clear what was in it, but I sat there with a tape recorder praying that these little, that these cassettes would not crumble and I wouldn't get, in trouble with the archivist, but in, amid that collection of cassettes was the audio of him actually giving that speech. Um, and I think it takes the scene to a whole other level, you know, just so much more immediate and raw and emotional than any kind of recreation with, no, you know, any celebrity, no matter how A-list the actor was, it just wouldn't have been the same yeah, as, yeah. as that actual moment. And so that was... And apparently the archive itself didn't really even know what it had, you know, in its own collection. So I guess the lesson, one lesson is sometimes you just have to dig through boxes and, and track down, you know, um, unknown, unearthed material, um, which is obviously more challenging in the era of COVID. Um, yeah, yeah. In-person visits are so difficult and sometimes online you know searching can yield similar results but but we were yeah so happy to, to find that and some other moments that that i do think really hadn't been unearthed for decades you well, know looking look, the oh, way sorry, it came ahead. together it almost struck me as like it was almost as if these things were meant to be found to tell the story oh well that's <laughs> i like the way well, you, one of my well, another one of, of my favorites is the um uh the ballot for the 1974 vote that Bennett alluded to earlier. And it was basically a two-year quest for that ballot. This was every APA member was voting on whether to affirm or reject the decision made by the Board of Trustees in December of 1973. And to the uh, APA's credit, they were very supportive of this uh, film and our efforts to tell it. I think that's a testament to the APA because many organizations try and run from, from dark history. They don't want it told. They don't want a spotlight. Uh, shine on it and uh well, on the right side of history now so it's all right no it is and, but it's it's uh it would be easier for them to say you know what let's just yeah. brush this under the rug that's ancient yeah. history but they wanted the story told and uh their ceo and medical director today is is an openly gay man dr saul levin and we oh. feature him in the film but that is a real uh, evidence of how far the organization has moved but the apa's archivist uh, dina gorland was such a an intrepid assistant along the way, you know, trying to find photos that we could use. And, and we, you know, it told us, would inquire every few months, any news on that ballot? We're really trying to find the ballot. And eventually the ballot, she uncovered it. Now we would have made the film without the ballot. We didn't need the ballot, but it's just a nice little 
nugget before we sort of uh, get to the end of the film. Yeah. And, and, you know, like I said, each little piece of the film is there are stories like that about how we how we discovered them. I, I caught, sorry, I just want to mention on your website, on, on a Facebook today, on your Facebook page, you have a, a photo um, uh, of uh, the the headstones of Gay and, and um, Barbara. And what cemetery is that? I, I, I think I read it and I went, what? <laughs> Tell us about that. That's very interesting. Yeah, it's the Congressional Cemetery here in Washington, D.C. And uh, over the decades, really since the, the mid 80s, it has become a, um, a popular burial ground uh, for um, LGBT people. Frank Kameny is there. You alluded to Barbara Giddings and, and Kayla Husen. Kay unfortunately passed away earlier this year and is such an amazing force she was. And we were thrilled to be able to meet her and interview her. But yeah, this cemetery in Washington, uh, you know, there were some presidents buried there and there. Uh, there Can anybody some... be buried there or is it like a. Yeah, you can. Uh, you, yes, you, it's oh, a, okay. a private cemetery. I think it said a plot. Well, in that section, a plot, I think I read in the article was ten thousand uh, oh, uh, dollars okay. is. Uh, so anyway, it it's because of a popular spot now. <laughs> now they have a lovely headstone. There's but it's a great way to um, to mark our history in terms of having uh, someone like. Frank Kameny and, and Barbara and Kay there and, and other notable folks. It's really a place to pay homage to those who yeah. paved the way for, for what we have today. Yeah, I, I, I just want to talk about the mask for a moment because, you know, looking at that, that mask is like, oh my God, like, is he going to kill somebody? And I know that there were some folks who thought, oh, you can't wear that. You're not going to be taken seriously. And yet the result was he was taken more seriously hidden and, and, and wearing that getup than he would have potentially had he not. Right, right. I think there was this debate, you know, Frank Kameny, I think, had a, a, an understandable objection, partly about, you know, this movement, according to Kameny and the other activists, was about coming out, being open, being unashamed, being, you know, yeah. honest and portraying ourselves as gay people and saying we're healthy and we have nothing to apologize for. But the reality is for John Fryer, the man in the mask, um, he was a, a psychiatrist. He was a doctor at a time when it was taboo. And even, you know, he was subject to losing his medical license and being fired um, if he had been open and honest and had not chosen to, to be in disguise. And so I think the fact that he decided to wear the mask became such a emblematic way of underscoring that reality he didn't want you know like i think the message was i don't want to wear this mask but you're forcing me to or the yeah. oppressive you know nature of the situation is requiring me to and he it became such an amazing moment where people were really forced to think about well why is he wearing this mask and what's the point and is he exaggerating or is there some validity to this you know message and it, it ties into the fact that PBS will be broadcasting the film on National Coming Out Day, which is, you know, a, a, a annual reminder on October 11th, commemorating um, the 1987 March on Washington that took place on October 11th. And every year since then, there has been this international day to really focus attention on coming out. And I, I think it, you know, as I think about it, it, 
it's a, it's a form of activism that every LGBT person really can um, embody, you know, coming out to oneself, but also family and friends and coworkers is such a powerful way of, of marking our place in the world and, and doing what John Fryer did and saying, I, I am a gay person and I am not ashamed and I am open and proud and healthy. And so I think that tie into National Coming Out Day is perfect. And um, I'm very happy that PBS was able to make that scheduling, uh, you know. But everybody, if you have PBS or you can, you can purchase a special showing of, of the film on PBS. Fantastic. Well, it's, it's free, you know, for people who do have PBS and um, the broadcast is 10 o'clock, 10 p.m on that Monday, October 11th on the series nice. Independent Lens. But then for 30 days after that, it will also be streaming for free um, at pbs.org. So that's, another, you know, we're happy about that. You don't need a subscription. You don't need a password. You just, yeah. it's yeah. accessible. And a lot of the funding for this project actually did come from the PBS World Corporation for Public Broadcasting and their entity called Independent Television Service, which is really all about bringing diverse programming to public television. And so I think, you know, that in some ways it's, it's, it's really heartening that, that there's this public interest as an educational aspect to this project. And that so much of the, yeah, it became possible thanks to PBS um, and their support. Well, you won many awards. I think that's, that's, you know, <laughs> really amazing. We're and proud you know, Brent, of those. Brent, you found, you found this, this, film um at a film festival was it an lgbtq yeah i saw saw it at the the, uh, st louis film festival last year yeah and he came back oh i saw this amazing film yeah it it actually was it was my favorite film of the festival last year thank you yeah i think we've been in about 50 virtual festivals all around the world and it's been interesting to embrace the virtual world but in many ways we've been able to connect with a broader audience than we would have if if it was all in person though we're hopefully at some point we'll be able to do some in-person screenings but the it's been good to embrace the virtual world and a lot of our, um, you know, the storytellers from the film have been able to participate in some of the conversations as well, which has been a nice benefit. Well, in some ways, I think that's been kind of one of the blessings in disguise of COVID. Yeah. And the fact that by making film festivals now more virtual, you reach, you know, filmmakers are able to reach wider audiences. And I mean, if it hadn't been for, it hadn't been for this, I don't know if I necessarily would have found cured. So. Yep. Speaking of diversity, uh, one of the things I really liked about the film also was that even though this was largely brought about by the activities of gay activists, you don't shy away from including the fact that there were people in the straight world who were being supporters of this, particularly from the more enlightened members of the APA. But um, the fact that this was not strictly an entirely all gay effort to bring this about. And I think that's really important to recognize that sometimes, um, you know, the people in the gay community don't necessarily always appreciate our straight allies out there. And this film really helps to bring that home. I I would agree. Yeah. Yeah, Like Richard Green, um, we have that story. Richard Green, you know, focused on this issue as sort of a progressive psychiatrist who was, and he wasn't shy about reminding us that he was heterosexual and, you know, um, which is relevant in the sense that he was looking at this again as a scientist and he did this, you know, um, review of the data and the evidence and, and decided or was motivated to publish a paper um, to share that, 
you know, his impressions with his colleagues. And he talks about how his mentor said, put that in a drawer, like, let's, you know, quiet down that impulse and don't, you know, you could ruin your career by going out on this, you know, limb and, and um, you could jeopardize your professional standing. And I do give him credit for pushing back and saying, well, even if it hurts me professionally, I, I, I want to share this message with the world. And he did become such a powerful ally. Uh, which is a great example, as you're saying, Brent, of, of the power of people who are committed to social justice, um, standing up for other human beings. I think that's the bottom line. Yeah. I, and you know what? Same, Brent, same with Black Lives Matter, you know, it, that you have to have your your uh, your white allies and your, you know, whoever other allies that, that go with you, because like you can't, they just can't, everybody can't do it on their own. Like you have to do it together. Like, I think that's really just the message that everybody kind of needs to come together. But um, where are you going next? Patrick, you have another film in the, in your boot. <laughs> you can't visit someone in the maternity ward and say, when's the new baby coming? <laughs> sort of. Uh, we're st- no, we, it's, the first, we're st- it's the first thing they say when's the next one <laughs> no, it's nine been- months and two days <laughs> no, we've been really fortunate to um, raise some money for a, an outreach and engagement campaign the um, APA foundation and uh, Gilead Sciences AARP the AIDS Healthcare Foundation a better angel society. We've been able to raise some some money to that. You know, this year we've done seventy five virtual screenings with um, LGBT groups, mental health organizations, community groups, and so that effort will continue into next year. We'll be focused, as we talked about earlier, getting the film in front of colleges and and universities. And so it's um, there's still more work to be done in the distribution. I've got a file folder full of film ideas, nice. but I. Um, First thing I'm going to do is take a couple months off and then I'm going to sort of uh, continue with the distribution of Cured and then start to focus on what's next. The website, would, you want to share it just so? No, I would just gonna, add, no, like, uh, pick, picking up on that, but um, we were excited, are excited that um, the documentary has been optioned as the basis for a scripted series for oh. FX or Hulu. Um, Stephen Canals, who is the co-creator of Pose, is, is behind this and would be writing and executive producing this um, six or eight part limited series. So wow. it's in the early stages of development now, but there is in fact an option, um, a, you know, that has been signed. And Congrats. I just think, you know, I think, you know, which, which would become a big focus for Patrick could be in the coming months if it moves further into production. But thinking about like the John Fryer scene or, you know, all of these moments that we have some evidence for and scenes for in the documentary, but to flesh those out into actual scripted scenes where you understand more deeply what people were thinking and feeling and the sort of emotional, like who was John Fryer? You know, we, we, it could be fascinating to really dig into that question and, and Kameny and Barbara Giddings. It's such a, I think vivid and heroic cast of characters. Um, so I'm hoping that you know that that project actually comes to fruition, and that that um, and I'm glad that we actually are connected to it. So can yeah, I think it'd be awesome. Help I think it'd be amazing. It. Yeah, so that's that's on the horizon for both. All of All right, us. so people can look forward to October the 11th to watch Cured on PBS. They can. Is that the only place they can watch it? Uh, f- 
for now, I mean, we have a distributor in London who's selling the film around the world. So CuredDocumentary.com, we, you know, we've been on in the UK and Italy and uh, Israel and some other countries. So we're looking for a worldwide footprint with this. It's been very, uh, so you can, bottom line is CuredDocumentary.com is, is a good place that has sort of how people can see this film. Okay. Well, I promise to get you guys out of here on time and I'm going to do it. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Let's say goodbye to Facebook. Goodbye, Facebook. Thank you so much for paying attention today and, and continue to be here for us every, every week. Okay. So I'm just going to stop your recording.